Welcome to Plato's Pod, where we engage in a group discussion on selections from the complete works of Plato, the philosopher and geometer who wrote nearly 2,400 years ago. Today is March 20th, 2022, and I'm your host, James Myers. It is a pleasure to be joined in dialogue by members of the Toronto Philosophy and Calgary Philosophy Meetup groups. Whether you've been with us before or are here for the first time, whether you have experience with or are new to Plato's works, I encourage you to add your voice to our dialogue. To speak, I would ask participants to use the raise hands feature in Zoom, and I will call on you in order using your first name. As always, I have suggested three themes to focus our discussion, which are posted on the shared drive linked to the event notice on meetup.com. As we exchange thoughts on today's reading, I'll briefly summarize and try to connect different perspectives to a common thread of ideas. We can go in any direction the group chooses, but for everyone's benefit, please relate your comments and opinions to Plato's text. After we finish recording in two hours, I welcome anyone who wishes to remain online for Plato's Cafe, a casual half-hour discussion on Plato or philosophy in general. Today we continue reading The Sophist from 235e to 254b in the ongoing dialogue between young Theotetus and the unnamed visitor from Elia. The visitor from Elia is emphatic that the expression, that which is not, which is favored by people who profit from knowledge they claim to possess, is illogical. In Plato's time, those people were called sophists, and although we no longer use that name, we still find such people all around us, and they wield great power. It can be very convincing in telling us what things such as virtue are not, but when challenged to explain what they are, they often become entangled in logical contradictions. In today's reading, we encounter the visitor's quotes of Parmenides, also from Elia, who is held in great esteem. The visitor explains Parmenides' theory of the nature of being using the term that which is, insisting it has no logical opposite of is not, and is neither at rest nor subject to change. The visitor asserts that a clear account of that which is requires expertise. In our last episode, we debated Plato's method of collection and division, in which expertise is divided into successive opposites to follow the common thread and, quote, chase a thing through both the particular and the general, unquote. To appreciate this method of dialectic, which was met with some skepticism, we will need to revisit the proposition made by Socrates in the Phaedo that everything in the universe comes to be in opposites. Opposites are pairs of two, and if we accept that the limits of everything come to be in paired opposites, then perhaps we can expect that continuous division of two will eventually and inevitably lead to the first principle, which is the aim of dialectic. We will also have cause to revisit the Timaeus, with which we began season one of Plato's pod, and to reflect further on the nature of the soul presented throughout Plato's dialogues. These provide the foundation to understand Plato's presentation of the state of being as separate from the state of coming to be at 248a of the sophist. Being is its own derivative, infinitely dense, capable of neither increase nor decrease. It just always is in both the past and the future. Coming to be is what we call the present, which is a state of constant change, motion, and increase and decrease of all physical things. Our bodies and our five senses exist in that continuously changing state of coming to be, but our souls exist in the separate realm, the eternal, changeless state of being. The realm of being is not accessible to the bodily senses, only to the mind's reasoning. This is emphasized at 254b in the Sophist. So with this background from Phaedo and Timaeus and other dialogues, we can perhaps better understand the visitor's description of the forms. The forms he implies measures the capacity of the things that exist, and he proposes that the capacity or potential defines anything that shares in being. He goes on to explain the composition of the whole of being, 
having the characteristic of oneness in its composite parts. He and Theotetus end by concluding that some forms can mix with others, some can exclude others, some are common to all, and some always cause division. As they associate with one another with these differences, the forms necessarily exist in a harmony, and knowledge of their harmonics is held to be essential. We might imagine that such knowledge would require first and foremost an appreciation of number and calculation, which Socrates set out in the Republic as requisite for any philosopher. In any respect, harmony is a measure of proportionality, which in the visitor's view is a property of the soul that we discussed at the end of our last episode. So I found the explanation of the forms and the sophist to be particularly enlightening, and I wonder if you will too. It led me to begin rereading the dialogue Parmenides with which we will end this season. And I now see that dialogue in a new and far clearer light. That dialogue features a discussion of one in contrast to many and touches on the nature of being in time, which we will encounter today. So I will propose here for anyone who would consider the idea that the forms are the means by which our minds in the eternal realm of being apprehend the logical order of change in the physical state of coming to be that our bodies occupy. The forms are geometric and necessarily do not exist in or affect the physical universe in order that they can accurately describe the physics. Einstein clearly proved the physical universe to be geometric, otherwise E would not equal mc squared. And Heisenberg's uncertainty principle established that our knowledge of physics will always require estimation. As one support for my proposition, I offer 248D to E in today's reading which is a discussion of the separation of the observer and the observed, as we can now witness in quantum mechanics. For another, I refer to Parmenides' geometry of the whole being and the one at 244e. We have some complex details to sort through today, so please bear with me if I move us from one thread to the next without reaching a full conclusion on a matter. We can return to these matters in any event in two weeks in our conclusion of the sophist. So now, before we revisit the contention that everything comes to be in opposites, let's start with a few minutes for some modern context on the reasons to understand that which is and the nature of being. Why is it such an important uh, understanding today, 2,400 years after Plato wrote about it? Or is it now mere semantics and of no material relevance? Either way, can anyone provide examples to support or refute the present importance of a discussion on the meaning of that which is. And so I'll put that question out there and just wondering what people think about that. Is, is there some particular importance of that which is, understanding that which is now? Uh, is it more important or less important than it was in Plato's time? Um, what are the circumstances that we find ourselves in now to understand the actual nature of being? Let me just throw out one idea, which is something that I read a couple of days ago uh, with respect to this tragic and horrible war in the Ukraine. And it's that someone posted a what's called a deep fake video of Ukraine's president. And in this deep fake video, which was not a real event, it was it was, uh, you know, computer generated. Uh, apparently, the president of the Ukraine was saying that his soldiers should uh, should surrender, put down their weapons. And so this was a faked video. Now, fortunately, it was quite clear that it was faked. You know, the, the, the audio was poor and the, the imaging was poor. But, you know, as, as 
computers get more and more powerful, these things will become more and more convincing. And I think there's, you know, lots of evidence. You know, we receive emails from you know, fake senders, um, you know, computer algorithms are getting faster and faster. You know, sometimes it's hard to discern reality from things that are not real. In other words, you know, that which is from, you know, that which is false. Um, so, you know, that was just one example, I think, of quite a modern relevance of this particular question, you know, what that is, uh, uh, what that means. And I'm just wondering if there's any other thoughts, JK? You mentioned uh, quantum mechanics, right? And mm-hmm. Relating to this uh, issue of, uh, of uh, is and, and, and uh, is not, right? Mm-hmm. And so we, we don't really understand you know, we have different interpretations of what uh, what is there in the in the quantum realm. <clears throat> you know, sense of wholeness, or whether there is something there or not. You know, so it's, I think there's like eight or nine or ten different interpretations. So we're still uncertain whether you know what is it just is or like, uh, is just one one being as Parmenides uh, you know uh, asserts. Or whether it's just uh, is there are many many uh, many worlds you know, as one another interpretation is uh, and that uh, you know so that uncertainty you know is certainly is certain is certainly um, you know convincing us that we don't know we're we're not sure what uh, you know if it's uh, if, if you know if it's primarily said as one being or if it's, if it's there's many, and it is, uh, you know. So, and that and that's a good point. You know, from my introduction, I mentioned two forty eight DDE, which um, in the Sophist I think is actually a reference to the observer effect. Um, the observer effect in quantum mechanics is that you know when we see, uh, you know, a beam of light coming through two slits, the act of observation changes its scattering pattern uh, compared to if we didn't observe it. Um, you know, and there's different interpretations of quantum mechanics. Uh, you know, there's a Copenhagen interpretation, there's Bohmian mechanics, um, and we just really don't know what is real and what isn't real in terms of that very minute level of the universe. So uh, it's a good example. Thank you. Um, Darren? So this uh, problem of being could sound like such um, an abstract question, but I really like the way you brought it down to earth. Um, about the um, referring to the deep fake um, of the Ukrainian president. Um, so I think, so when I was thinking of that, it made me um, think about how the problem of being um, and its relevance could just be the problem of knowledge, basically. And actually, in fact, uh, I mean, as we know that this dialogue is uh, sort of a second part of a, of a trilogy and the first first um, dialogue was the Theotetus, which was on the pro- very problem of knowledge. So there's a sort of a thread here. Um, so I, I generally think of the problem of being when people <laughs> ask that question as being something very abstract and metaphysical. But I really like the way James sort of brought it down to earth to make it sound more like or it could be like a problem of knowledge, like what actually is. So I think that's one part of the question. I think the really abstract question where you just simply ask what is being uh, that could exist too. 
but um but yeah I, I i like seeing this connection now that it could just be seen as also a problem of knowledge and that's of course more difficult and significant than ever given what we know like false knowledge can lead to um you know this is the era of the internet where there's so much so-called information out there and we know it's not just innocent right we know that i mean i think when the internet first arose i think there's a lot of optimism about about it and there was a lot of uh, maybe naivete about it but <laughs> now we see its dangers in all sorts of ways so yes so yeah maybe it could just be seen as a problem of knowledge good point i like the way you mentioned the dialogue theotetus because of course theotetus is a the main character in this particular dialogue that we're looking at and and in the dialogue theotetus the whole question you know they were debating whether um protagoras's statement that man is the measure of all things is true or not and you know the the point that protagoras was saying is that man is is the sole determinant of that which is and that which is not uh and that was the whole point of the dialogue theotetus and so as you said it's a it's perhaps a question of knowledge and certainly you know when uh, i think it was probably about five years ago you know a white house spokesperson claimed that there were alternative facts um so yeah, how can a fact be alternative um so you know this is this confusion that arises and i think there's a lot of discord that arises among people as a result so so thank you for that and we'll go to evan and jk thank you yeah i want to like considering or seeking for what reality is i want to have the power to give my own self the human to believe that they want to be real in a way. So instead of getting the agenda of the reality from outside factors, exterior factors, I want to find a way to make it real for myself and what I want to believe. I wish uh, like there was a video of my dreams and I wish that was real and I think I'm seeking for that way that I have a say in what I want to be the reality you have answers I'm listening it's a, it's a good point I mean certainly you know we have human creativity and that's you know we can create real like we can create things that become real that weren't real before and I think that's a very important point that, you know, it's not just reality isn't just fixed forever. Uh, it's something that is fluid, I think. And that's a, that's a very good point. In fact, I was reading a really interesting article about, um, it was in New Scientist, about uh, a theory that space-time actually uh, is created by observation. So every time we make an observation, this theory says that space-time actually expands in that particular direction that we're making the observation. So it's not like space-time isn't a static fabric. It's it's something that actually responds to our creative impulses. Um, so I think it's a really interesting idea. Um, so thank you. Um, JK? Yeah, so this uh, really talking about what the, the, the question of knowledge, right, in the present day, it's, just, it's referring back to the... Um, the uh, the text right where the sophists are playing a playing a crucial role in raising this question of knowledge right mm -hmm. because it was uh, 
that time it was <clears throat> maybe taken for granted that Parmenides, you know, uh, theory of, of uh, you know, theory was correct, that there is only one. That's the, that the, uh, you know, the one being is, is the truth. And so the sophists are, you know, perhaps as much as Socrates is raising the question of whether, you know, that is true or not. And, uh, and that, uh, you know, bringing it to the, uh, <clears throat> to the, um, discussion, the notion of becoming, you know, right. And the idea of the dialectic and, and, uh, the theory of, uh, you know, opposites and so forth. It's a good point. And, you know, there is that distinction, as I mentioned in, in the introduction between being and becoming, certainly in Plato's, um, context uh that the realm of being is eternal changeless it exists in the past and in the future the present is the state of becoming uh in which everything is coming to be but never actually is and that relates to timaeus 28a which is one of my favorite sections of timaeus um in which plato makes that distinction between that which always is and never becomes and that which only becomes but never is uh and so our bodies and all things physical are in the realm of coming to be which uh, always becomes but never is whereas our minds are in the eternal changeless realm of being so i think that's a very important thing to understand what plato is talking about here to understand that distinction between that eternal realm of being and the constantly changing state of becoming uh, maybe we'll just turn from here to um I'll just share my screen here to the question that we encountered last time, this question of division and collection that was raised in the first part of the sophist, um, where it was said that, uh, that expertise, you could divide expertise and continuously divide it into two opposites to come out to a final conclusion. And I think there was some doubt among the group about that. Um, and I just wanted to bring us back to that a little bit uh, so that we can move forward with this understanding, maybe uh, whether things actually come to be uh, in opposites. And so I'll just refer to Phaedo 70D to E, which is on the screen, if everybody can see this. It's just this short paragraph here. Um, I'll just read it. For all things which come to be, let us see whether they come to be in this way, that is, from their opposites, if they have such, as the beautiful is the opposite of the ugly, and the just of the unjust, and a thousand other things of the kind. Let us examine whether those that have an opposite must necessarily come to be from their opposite and from nowhere else. As for example, when something comes to be larger, it must necessarily become larger from having been smaller before. So that's the assertion that Socrates made in the Phaedo. Uh, and I just wanted to return to that. Uh, I think when we discussed the Phaedo, you know, back a month or so ago, um, maybe there wasn't uh, a general consensus on this matter, but I just wanted to return to this because I think this theme is coming up here in the Sophist, and I think it's, it's very important to understanding um, how Plato is presenting the forms. And so I'm just wondering what people think about this. Uh, can you think of anything that does not come to be in opposites. You know, we've seen examples of, for example, temperature. You know, temperature comes to be in hot or cold. So those would be opposites. Or height. Height comes to be in tall and short. Um, you know, we see the opposites of good and bad. You know, you, you can't have good without having bad, and you can't have bad without having good. 
Um, we've seen Socrates talk about the opposites of life and death. Um, in the first part of the Sophist, they made the distinction of animals between tame animals and wild animals. Um, and now in this section of the Sophist, there's the distinction that's made between change and rest as opposites. Um, and so you know, I'm just wondering if anybody can think of anything that does not come to be in opposites uh, or anyone who wants to challenge the, the proposition that things come to be in opposites. Um, are there any particular thoughts on that? Were the, uh, the ultimate or the original uh, momentum or, or, or force or energy that uh, mm -hmm. Would that be something that doesn't come in opposites? I mean, energy yeah. transforms into matter, but the, but the what is the you know the original uh, life force, right? Supposedly, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the, that would be, I think, the question. You know, what was the very first thing that came to be, and first would imply that there would be no opposites because opposites require two, right? So maybe that's where we're talking about the singularity, you know, the, the idea that, uh, you know, in physics, a singularity is a black hole, for example. And it, it doesn't have the opposites that the fabric of space-time has. Um, so that's, a, that's an unresolved question. But I would think, logically, the first thing that came to be wouldn't have opposites because it would be two at that point. It'd just be one. Uh, and, and, you know, certainly Plato talks about the number two, you know, which we saw in the Phaedo, there was that great, uh, that great little distinction that he made about, you know, how does two come to be? So that's a good question. Uh, Darren, your thoughts? I, I wonder if it's something like the singularity, though. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what Plato would, thought of, uh, would, would have thought of this idea, but, um, or the idea. Um, but I, I wonder if, if we consider it or something like that as not having an opposite, I wonder if Plato would wonder what we could actually say about it or think about it, or if it's just something that's unsayable. Cause there something that was sort of an interesting thread in this dialogue is that there's a lot of talk about, I mean, I guess this happens in a lot of dialogues, not just this one, but there's a lot of talk of like being able to say something or not say something or not say something and how hard it is to, um, to say, to be able to utter something like he, at a certain point, I'll have to look for it, but at a certain point he, he says like, what we're trying to, what we're trying to look for is like unsayable, um, and unthinkable and unconceivable. There's like a list of terms he uses. Um, so, um, so maybe there's a sort of point about what is sayable, um, and there's there's sort of oppositions that way, just maybe I don't know by nature of our language or thinking. And then if it's just like one thing, <laughs> um, and there's no opposites, um, maybe there's no parts either. Maybe it's something that's like, like maybe that's not even like thinkable or conceivable, or you know, there's there, there's no there's no um, point for us in, in thinking about it. I don't know. It's just a thought about the about the singularity or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or the the unmoved mover, right? Something like that. Right. 
it, it, it's a good point, and, and I think uh, you know, Darren, you raised it. I've got that quote actually on the um, in the uh, in the handout here, um, so we'll, we'll come across that. But I think maybe what you raised is the idea that being is a singularity, because certainly in in this part that we're talking about today, they say that you can't say not being. So being might be the singularity, and, and there is nothing beyond being. Um, so. Uh, Ever your thoughts? I'm wondering if we can even understand the concept of thinking without opposites, because when you when you even say being, I I can't stop thinking about not being. <laughs> or when I think of like black holes, like but there is something again. So I don't know. Is that even understandable? It's a good question. I mean, I, I, the more I think about opposites, the more I, I, that's the way I seem to think, you know, like you're always comparing something. Um, and that's why I was asking the group, like, can anybody think of something that does not come to be in opposites? JK, your thoughts? So, so maybe you can't, yeah, it's just like, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, not, it's just, not just being, but, um, you know, if you think of being, it's it's automatically you know have to uh, bring in non-being, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it it is something that is not stable, you know, right? Uh, like in some of the uh, you know uh, great philosophies, like uh, you know Taoism, you know, um, you know once you say it, if that's not what it is, you know, or uh, you know, so um, so it is it is um, you know because if you think of order, right? The opposite would be chaos, so you'd have to include chaos in the idea of order, or, or disorder. Yeah, 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 for sure. Disorder and order. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Oh, good point, um, Darren. Um, so um, I don't know if this is um, anticipating where um, the we or you you might want to get to later. Um, so we can save it for later if you want, but this discussion is, um, making me think of, um, a bit of the, uh, excursion they have on the sophist versus the philosopher, which is really interesting. I mean, there's like, finally, they say something that seems to be positive about the distinction. Um, they just sort of, uh, the visitor does. Um, so this is at, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find the part uh 249 d just right there the visitor has this paragraph i just want to read it out i think it's so interesting um because there's so many questions <laughs> and back and forth in these dialogues and then it's always interesting when you know it seems like maybe plato is trying to sneak in a view here or something but of course this is going to be up for interpretation but so the visitor here says the philosopher the person who values these things the most um, so I think they're talking about like knowledge, understanding, intelligence, just in the above, uh, the person who values these things the most absolutely has to refuse to accept the claim that everything is at rest, either from defenders of the one or from friends of the many forms. In addition, he has to refuse to listen to people who make that, which is change in every way. He has to be like a child begging for both and say that which is everything is both the unchanging and that which changes. 
So I find it so interesting. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know if I've encountered this uh, reading Plato before. So, and this, if this is supposed to be a late text, maybe this is um, Plato like finally coming settle on a certain view. Um, and um, as we saw, like, uh, like earlier in this piece, in this dialogue, he also talks about the endless disputes, right? Between the people who think like everything is changed and everything is one. And, you know, where there are many forms, there's one, and then he goes on and on, like there's all these distinctions he draws. Um, and he calls it like this endless disputation. Um, and here he's saying, it seems like he might be just saying, I mean, it's in the words of the visitor, but um, it seems like he's proposing that the philosopher isn't just interested in one side of the opposites um, and saying that everything is this, everything is one, like, or everything is changed. Like he just thinks like, it seems like Plato may be coming around to the view that just like, that's just so pointless. It's like the philosopher is interested in the whole and there are these different forms. There is change and there is something that's changeless. And there is, there are things that are singular and there are things that um, are not. And, um, and of course we could be interested in any one of those things, but he seems at least some of the dialogue, again, this is maybe, maybe someone else will interpret it differently, but, um, like some of the earlier parts of the dialogue of the reading today, it seems like he's almost impatient with these groups. It's like, oh, there's this group. And then, oh, they say everything is one. And then there's this other group that says everything is, and he's like, okay, well here he's, he seems to come right out and say, well, the philosopher is interested in the whole, in all of it. We want to know if you want to have knowledge, you need to know, like, you talk, I think James read the quote earlier about, you know, there's, there are like things that combine, like how things put together and what things go with which, like there's that part where he talks about that. Um, and so there, there, there's, there becomes a more sort of subtlety in like where Plato wants to go, where there's all these different elements in the world and we have to understand, and they don't just, you can't just say they like, like there, there's like a complexity and specificity to how these parts go together and work. And it's not just like everything is one or everything is changed. Like it's, there's <laughs> different things combined different ways. And that the point the philosopher's um, interest and goal is just to understand how like the world fits together in this way, how all this fits mm -hmm. together. So that's just, I mean, I, I don't know, this may be <laughs> jumping ahead a bit in the discussion, but what the philosopher does versus the sophist, but um, I just thought like what um, the discussion just sort of brought, sort of just raised this interesting thing where a uh, passage here where the philosopher seems to be interested in all of it. It's actually a very good point. And, and, you know, actually the part that I wanted to end with today follows shortly after that section. So the part I wanted to end today um, goes from 252B to 253C. And, and it's, it's actually talking about what you raised, this idea of the whole and the parts and how that fits together in the context of the forms. And I, this is what I found the most powerful thing I have read about the forms so far. And I, I just, it was about the sixth time after I read it that I finally realized. And that's why I said in the introduction that I thought this was essential to understanding what is said in the dialogue Parmenides. Uh, because, you know, I think as you pointed out, the philosopher is interested in that whole and how everything fits together um, you know, the, the philosopher is the person who tries to bring that together. And I think it's the idea of harmonics that, um, that the visitor raises near the end of today's reading. That is, that is how the philosopher brings it together. And, and the way you would bring together something with harmonics 
is through number and calculation, which is what uh, Socrates said in the Republic was essential knowledge for the philosopher, which we don't see as essential knowledge for the philosopher now, but it was 2,400 years ago. Um, and I think that's very important to, to understand. And that's how you bring all of these disparate things together and, and find that common thread that ties everything together. I think that's very important. So, so thank you for raising that. We'll go to Jose. Yeah, I was trying to find a, a visual representation of being. And I, I started thinking about what we all learn in elementary school, the band diagrams. Remember that representation, you have a rectangle and you have two circles in it. And the two circles either intersect or don't. So if those two circles don't intersect, they are opposites of each other. Because if there's an intersection, that means that uh, there's something that is true for both, right? So if you want to represent just or unjust, that's the way you do it. Two separate circles that do not intersect. Now, think about it. So what's outside those two circles? What's outside those two circles is an infinite number of pairs right, that you just decided not to represent on those two circles. Okay, that's good. So what's the rectangle? So I thought about it, and I, I think maybe the rectangle is the beam, is the holder, is the thing that never changes. There are only the pairs inside it that move around and no longer are opposites or et cetera. So I, I, I envision it as a platform. The being is the platform, is the stuff that never changes because it's holding all the individual pairs that move from one opposite to the other. Anyway, I mean, sometimes we cannot, you, you can, well, you cannot represent in words, maybe you can represent in a, in a picture. I couldn't agree with you more, Jose. I, I think that's, in, that's actually what I've tried to do here on the screen is a pictorial representation of being. And I just, uh, just wanted to, because you mentioned circles. So there's this very, part of Timaeus here in which um, in which they talk about the universe as the living thing, capital L, capital T. And it says, now that it was the living thing's nature to be eternal, but it wasn't possible to bestow eternity fully upon anything that is begotten. So the, the physical universe is begotten, but eternity exists before and after the physical universe. And so he, the, the craftsman, uh, began to think of making a moving image of eternity. At the same time as he brought order to the universe, he would make an eternal image, moving according to number of eternity remaining in unity. So that's the, the whole that Darren brought about, I think is that idea of the you know, eternity remaining in unity. This number, of course, is what we now call time, which is Plato's little sneaky way of saying, of course, yeah, like, of course, um, do we really think that that's number is what we call time? But anyway, it's, it's something I think he's trying to tell us there. And he goes on to say, uh, and, and the, the theory, the theme of circles keeps coming up throughout Plato. Um, so near the bottom here that I'm highlighting, these rather are forms of time that have come to be. Uh, time that imitates eternity and circles according to number. And then we see the, the idea of circles again in this dialogue when, or in the part that we're reading today, when the visitor refers to Parmenides' quote of spheres, 
uh, and we'll get to that quote because I think that's an important one. So a sphere is a three-dimensional circle, essentially. Um, so I've put these diagrams here that I wanted to consider and just I'm suggesting that we imagine that we put a circle around these three diagrams. So the diagrams are a straight line and I've just labeled the two points, the two ends of the straight line A and B. And then I've got two straight lines intersecting each other, uh, forming a cross. So the horizontal line is AB and the vertical line is CD. And then what I've done in the third diagram, I've got that cross and I've joined, I've created two triangles. I've joined C and B. So I've joined the top of the vertical line with the right-hand side of the horizontal line. And I've drawn a triangle from the bottom of the vertical line to the um, left of the horizontal line. And if we put a circle around each of these diagrams, imagine what would happen if you started to rotate these diagrams inside the circle. So the first one uh, would be just a single rotation. There'd be no change. That, that first line, it's just one single line. There's no opposition. It would just continue rotating inside the circle. Uh, the second one, which is the cross, the, the, the two lines, the vertical line and the horizontal line inside a circle, they could rotate independently. Right? So one line could rotate in one way, the other could rotate in the other way. They could rotate, they can impose each other, like uh, impose one on the other. So that, that's kind of, I think, independent rotation. Uh, so either can rotate, and there's no pairing in this particular one of this cross. No, where the pairing happens, I think, is in the third diagram, which is where we've got the two triangles. Um, and so they, if, if, if you rotate that third one with the two triangles inside a circle, I think that's where you would get that, that dependency and that's where it would be the opposites, I think. Like, I think that, you know, you could put, you know, if we're talking about temperature, um, one of those triangles could be hot, the other could be cold. And, you know, why do I say circle? Well, circle is that which has no beginning and no end. Uh, so I think that's maybe why we could maybe think of those as a way of like visualizing being in this idea of opposites. I just wanted to present that idea. Just think about those three things inside a circle. Um, so we can talk about that further, but Moshe, your, your thoughts? Good morning. Hi. Um, okay, I want to go back to, I want to address several things. I want to go back to, I believe it was Darren who was talking about, you know, that the philosopher is interested in everything. and. I want to just take a, a shot at everything for a second. Uh, if we, I, I believe it is helpful to understand what Plato is saying in Plato's terms, not in our terms, by taking a look briefly at the pre-Socratics. Uh, when Thales, well, Miletus came up and said, um, said that everything is water, okay? He was talking about nature. Now that is the everything that he's that that the materialists are talking about. And remember that from Thales through Anaxagoras, who was the teacher of of, uh, of, um, of Socrates, uh, that that nature was conceived as as everything and being what being was, you know, the, the, the question of being was well, what you know what is the what is the nature of what is the nature of being? Now, in the uh, it, 
Would you go to the uh, that quote that you had from the Timaeus? Yes. Yeah, that's great. Now it was the living thing's nature to be eternal. It isn't possible to bestow eternity fully upon anything that is begotten. So one of the ways of interpreting this with a slight, you know, with a, a nod to the pre-Socratics is that the living thing, which is being, okay, um, it must be eternal. And it is not possible to bestow being upon anything um, that is begotten. So being is not begotten. Being is eternal. It, it comes from nothing. And the question is, well, what is being? What is the nature of being? What is the nature of nature? And Parmenides is, he, he obviously broke from the, um, uh, from the materialists. Um, and we have other people who've broken from the, you know, from the materials too, like Lucretius and and uh, uh, Democritus uh, a little bit later. But what he is saying is that being, uh, making a logical point of view, if being is everything, then there is no other. There is no non-being. Okay, and if being is what you can talk about, because we talk about all the things that are around us, but the philosophers are really interested in a much grander uh, uh, idea of being, then it makes no sense to talk about what isn't because it isn't, okay? You can't even get a conception of it. So that's why Parmenides uh, being was, you know, it was full, it was eternal. He uses the idea of spheres, you know, sort of to give us a, you know, a mental image. And then remember, Parmenides also goes, you know, when he's talking to the, uh, when he's talking to the goddess, he always, he, you know, he's, he has two parts of what he's saying, you know, part of his logical part, the other part, he goes into a poem and he's talking about becoming and things like, you know, things like that. So for me, it is helpful to interpret, to try to interpret Plato on his own terms by talking about being as everything that there is, and, and Plato's turn, Plato, you know, gives another logical turn to Parmenides and says, well, you know, the things that are really being are these forms, these things that we can know directly by the mind, which makes him a, a, a realist. Um, but these forms have these eternal parts because they all, uh, they, they all participate in being. But it raises an interesting question, which the later part of our the sophist deal deals with, because he starts talking about being and the other in order to try to make sense out of non-being. And so if being has an other, he's trying to say that it would be not being, and therefore you can talk about not being in terms of the other. And I, I'm not quite sure to me that might be so much semantic hand-waving, but I, I think that's how he's he's trying to get at it. And he's not talking about particular tables and chairs. He's talking about nature. He's talking about everything when he's talking about being. You know, you raise some um, some good context there in terms of the pre-Socratics and, and that, that um, world in which Plato operated and, and worked. Um, 
And I think the, you know, the, what you said about non being, I think is something that, you know, features very, you know, importantly in this first part of, of today's reading, which we'll get to in a, in a few minutes, maybe. Um, and, and, you know, Parmenides view that the being is everything, you know, that, the, that there is nothing beyond being. Um, the only non-being is nothing, um, you know, I think is, is, that's the conclusion I'm drawing. But, you know, in, in my, in the proposition I made in my introduction, um, you know, I, I see the forms as existing in that realm of being, which is not a physical realm. So the forms are not physical. Um, in my proposition that the forms exist in that realm, uh, which is only accessible by the mind, but that's the eternal realm. Uh, and that which is begotten, as they say in Timaeus, uh, is the physical realm in which our bodies and our bodily senses uh, operate. But the mind doesn't operate in that, in that physical realm. The mind is, is elsewhere. It's in that realm of, of the eternal being. Uh, and I think that's, that's key to understanding what Plato is, is going on about here. So... Um, thank you. And Joel? Uh, just looking for a quick clarification, just making sure a large part of this doesn't go right over my head. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, still digesting and having fun playing with the question or the challenge you said towards the beginning of all of this. And just so that I get it right, can, can you repeat it again in your own words? Like, uh, what was it again? Like, can you imagine something that's never becoming or doesn't have opposites? Yeah, it, it, exactly. Yeah, can, can you imagine anything that comes to be without opposites? Is what I was is what I was asking. Now, I thought I um, if I thought I saw what you were getting at. Did you give your answer before the last questioner? Were you you using the circle as basically uh, that that that's an example of what what doesn't have opposites essentially or uh, am i not seeing that properly um i don't think i made that statement but i i would say that that could be the case actually that the circle doesn't have opposites in the sense that it doesn't have a beginning or an end mm -hmm. um and opposites would tend to have a beginning and end right so you know in this diagram that i put of the two triangles you know there is a beginning and an end to each of the triangles but they are connected and this connection here, where it's uh, you know at the midpoint of those two triangles, I've labeled E. I think that's what he's talking about uh, in that section about harmonics and that idea that that which is is actually the neither of the opposites. That which is actually is the the the, the conjunction of those opposites. So it's a third thing, and that's a, that's a point that that is made in this in this dialogue around 248 or 247, uh, this, this idea that which is, is this midpoint, and it's neither of those other two. So it's a third thing. That which is is a third thing is what he's saying. Okay, I think I'm with you. Thank you very much. All right. Jose. Yeah, this is more a, a question, I think, in the, the theory of forms of Plato. Is it only about material things? Are the forms only representation of material things, or it includes immaterial as well? Mm. And the, the reason why I raise the question is, um, if it's material, like what we can sense uh, or perceive with our senses, then there are no opposites. 
like for instance, the form of a horse, the form of a house, the form of whatever, was the opposite of a chicken, right? But if it's immaterial, then you can argue you have to have opposites because just and unjust, moral and immoral, all these opposites are adjectives of a noun. So then the question is, what is your, this is my question, what is your interpretation of the forms? Do they include immaterial things? And if they do, then that means that that's where you spin off from that platform all the infinite pairs. Question. Well, I, I would um, ask others to answer as well, but my, my view is that the forms are both immaterial and material. Um, you know, he says that there's a form of the good, for example. The good is that which gives truth to the things known and the power to know to the knower. That's the form of the good. So the good is immaterial. There's a form of beauty. There's a form of the one. Um, so those are immaterial examples of forms. Uh, and they all have opposites. And now, so you asked about the form of a chicken uh, or a horse. Um, those would be examples of living things. Uh, and the opposite of living things is non-living things. Uh, and I think we saw that example actually in the first part of the sophist. Um, so that's how I think you have to kind of you have to kind of go to the general category. So it's not necessarily that there's an opposite to a chicken per se, but a chicken is a living thing. And so you, that's the general category. That's, that's the way I would see it. So I don't know if that answers the question, but anybody else who wants to tackle that so, one is welcome. So there's a form of the beautiful and a form of the ugly. Hmm. Right. Just to follow on Plato's thought. Right. So that's what I was saying. If that rectangle I was referring to in the, my mm -hmm. previous example is the, the forms, mm -hmm. then whenever you spin <clears throat> ugliness, you spin beauty. And those are the pairs that populate the rectangle in that visual. Right, exactly, exactly. And, and in this diagram that I've got here on the screen, you know, the two triangles, you can make a rectangle out of that. Just put a point up here between A and C and a point between D and B. And you've got a square, and a square is a rectangle. So, but those are not those squares and rectangles, and um, those things are you. You can never find a uh, a perfect square, a perfect circle in the material world, right? Right. So they are in the realm of forms that are in. That, that means that they're immaterial. Right. They're eternal. Right. So that means the forms are you know are transcendent beings, transcendent, yeah, metaphysical. Um, ideas, right? pure ideas, and they have nothing to do with, um, they're not subject to change. They're not subject to the material world of change. And that's exactly, I think, uh, what uh, Plato is saying. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, I agree with Jose that it is a question, it's a good question. And so, uh, I, uh, in, this, in this dialogue with the sophists, it brings into question, you know, whether the forms are uh, can deny the um, the process of change, and it, you know, it puts into question whether uh, whether the, the the idea of forms has has to accept the um, 
the notion, the discussion about non-being, the sophist is raising that question with their falsity. And that falsity implies a kind of non, uh, the opposite of what being is, what not, uh, what the idea of the forms are, you know. Can they, can they be, uh, can the forms, you know, uh, truthfully deny the, the, um, the idea of, the, of non-being, of nothingness, right? That, uh, that which is, uh, which is, you know, uh, present, eminent in the material world or eminent in, in existence, right? Can, can something be outside of existence? Or is it just a um, product of mental, uh, you know, um, you know, mental uh, what uh, rationality or reason? Uh, it, it's a question that I think you're maybe what you referred to as maybe whatever was talking about earlier is this idea of creation of things that do not currently exist, um, and maybe that's kind of the irrational part of of our existence. Um, so. There's rational existence, and then there's the incommensurable irrational, and that's where the creative part arises, I think. But you know, maybe that's a thought that we can explore. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, the way I see Plato talking about the forms is that nothing exists beyond the forms. Like the forms define everything. Um, so, uh, we'll go to Moshe. Uh, okay. Um. I, I think I've discovered an equivocation here. First of all, let me just tease everyone with the idea that, that um, you know, you had just said nothing exists beyond the, the forms, but we have, the forms are supposed to be being, okay? But nothing exists beyond the forms, but you said that we have to have the good in order for being to be known. So now you've got something that is not being, which is required in order for being to be known. And I I, I, I find that problematic. I'm just gonna throw that out there. I'm gonna go back to your, um, your challenge. You know, you challenge everyone to imagine something uh, that comes into being without an opposite. Well, first I started thinking about a point, okay? A point has an, outside, but it doesn't have an inside, okay? And then I started thinking about a circle. Well, a circle has no opposite, okay? There's no such thing, there's no such thing as a non-circle. If I ask you to bring me the non-circle in the room, you can't bring me anything. But then I noticed that, there, that, that you were flipping back and forth between something that we've, we've talked about before, at least I know I've talked about it before, which is the distinction between a contradictory and a contrary, okay? And contraries are those kinds of things that have opposites, usually hot and cold, soft and hard. Um, I had the, uh, you know, I had the advantage the other day, there was a storm here in Rochester and, you know, the trees are outside and I usually take a tree to be fairly rigid, okay? Yeah, I go up to a tree and I press on it and nothing happens. But I was looking at the wind blowing through those trees and those things were just, they were, they were completely elastic. They were just completely flopping around. There was nothing rigid about them at all. And, um, and I've also given the example before 
of, you know, one contrary. And we can come up with lots of examples of these things. Of, you know, if I build a ladder from here to the moon, you know, and I start climbing up the ladder, you know, I'm going to be going up and up and up and up until I get to some point without changing direction. Now I'm going down and down and down, and I'm going to hit the moon with my head. All right. But I will be going down. So um, if we, I think, I think Plato would be embarrassed if he thought that we were conflating, which means equivocating, on the notions of contraries or contradictories as opposites. And I think we should come down on one side or the other, because otherwise we're going to have to ask ourselves all the time when you're talking about an opposite, are you talking about a contrary, like being and not being? Okay. Or are you talking about a contrary, like up and down, hot and cold? And I, I just wonder how, how everybody else feels about that. It's a fair question. I think that's something that we, that we need to resolve. And you know, we can look at the idea of not being um, in the first part of today's reading and consider whether that's, um, whether the case that's being made there is, is uh, right or wrong. Um, in the point that you raised about knowing, um, it's really there's the part that I mentioned in my introduction about uh, 248D to E, which is, um, so in 240, no, it was 240, 247E, uh, where the visitor says, I'm saying that a thing really is, if it has any capacity at all, either by nature to do something to something else, or to have even the smallest thing done to it by even the most trivial thing, even if it only happens once. I'll take this as a definition of those which are amount to nothing other than capacity. So that's kind of the potential, you know, so things that be have potential. And then he goes on to define knowledge, uh, or at least put knowledge in that context at 248D uh, uh, when he says, well then, do you say that knowing and being known are cases of doing or having something done or both? Is one of them doing and the other having something done or is neither a case of either? And then Theotetus responds, obviously that neither is a case of either since otherwise they'd be saying something contrary to what they said before. The visitor says, Oh, I see. You mean that if knowing is doing something, then necessarily what is known has something done to it. When being is known by knowledge, according to this account, then insofar as it's known, it's changed by having something done to it, which we say wouldn't happen to something that's at rest. Um, and so he's, he's saying here, I think he's talking about the observer effect where knowing isn't actually, knowing isn't actually being, it's, it's just knowledge of that which is. Um, and that's the role of the mind, I think. Uh, so, you know, being is everything around the mind and, and the, the mind itself is necessarily separate. I mean, the, the mind is the observer and being is that which is observed. Uh, and those have to be separate. Uh, you, you can't mix the two. You, you can't have the observer affecting the observed because then you'd never have an accurate rep representation of the observed. Uh, well, then so, you have two beings. You, right. You've got the mind and you've got this other thing. Right. And I, I don't think Plato was a dualist, right. not in that way, not in the Cartesian sense. Okay. Well, it's, it's a fair point, and I think we need to arrive at some conclusion on that.
so thank you for raising that. Um, Darren, your thoughts? Um, so I have thoughts on the uh, preceding discussion before um, your, 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 your comments just now. So, um, but I also, <laughs> I also want to comment what you just said now. Um, so that, that you brought up a really interesting section. And I guess, I think I might have interpreted it a little bit differently. I thought like, um, I thought like your reading was inter really interesting in that it ties in with like how um, the suggestion that like knowing something might like change it somehow. I thought it was um, actually a kind of refutation here of the idea that like being is a kind of capacity because I, I thought there were like, I'll have to read this in more detail. Sorry, I'm just like looking at it now. There's like obviously a lot of like subtle argumentation here, but I thought he was saying that, you know, if the, if the one or if the being can be known, then, um, then that somehow contradicts the idea that it's like a kind of, that being is a kind of capacity um, because at least these contradictions. Um, so I thought, I thought this was just like part of the series where they were trying to define being as like being different things and then like none of them seem to work. Um, so, but, but an interesting implication of this part though, is that like, um, like there's, there's these interesting suggestions here that, you know, if, um, that like being in the sense of like capital B being is like that it can't be known in a way um in this uh part you just read so um but i i don't or know that it requires or that it requires reason i think is what is the point that was made in timaeus 28a is it okay. being that eternal realm is not accessible to the physical senses and so it requires the mind to apply reason to understand it i see okay yeah, yeah. so there's yeah maybe there's different forms of apprehending things right yeah Right. Like there's a there's a material like he talks about the materialist at some point where like mm -hmm. their idea of knowledge is like running up to a tree and they're like grasping it really tightly and they right. this is like this is knowledge yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um yeah but this like yeah so this that two forty eight e here he says mm -hmm. when being is known by knowledge according to this account then insofar as it's known it's changed by having something done to it which we say wouldn't happen to something that's at rest so it's like there's some like gym logical gymnastics here yeah. about like yeah. if something is known like yeah if being is known then that creates problems but mm. yeah we can look at that in a yeah that, but, that's okay. a mixture of change and rest that, that whole <laughs> argument there yeah 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 um yeah so there's a lot of this stuff in this dialogue right like in this in the reading today um there's like this series of arguments where they, i like i thought what it was happening what they were trying to um refute various accounts of being and like they seem to lead contradictions so it's leading us somewhere, it seems. So, um, so I'll try. I, I want to comment on what the discussion preceding that, uh, which was. So at first, I wanted to just bring up a passage. Um, sorry, I have to like find it in the text again. Um, oh no, I lost it. Okay, I found it. Okay, it's at two fifty four, two fifty three to two. Or sorry, two fifty three D to two and on from there. So they're like. Um, so this is the section on like the nature of expertise and, um, oh, sorry. No, I, yeah. So sorry, the passage, I, I wanted to start at like 253A basically. So this is where they start talking about expertise and how, um, 
they've like gotten rid of like two notions i'm just reading this from the top of the page um and they say there's only one option left which is that some things so they're okay so so the two options they they supposedly discarded by this point is that like everything is like everything is not is that what they've discarded right yeah and and so at 252 e right um the visitor says one of the following things has to be the case either everything is willing to blend or nothing is or some things are and some things are not so it seems like they've settled on this third thesis that some things do mix with other things and some things don't so they've there's sort of a pluralist view almost here now and then they talk about uh letters of the alphabet and how like some letters go together to form words and some just like can't go together and then the gram the um, person's expert at grammar is um, can tell us give an account of that and then there's notes like high notes versus low notes and the musician is an expert at that and can give an account of that and um so there's so there's different kinds of knowledge it seems like it turns out and then so this leads so this leads me to what i want to read on um 254 or sorry 253 d um i'll just read the section yeah so the visitor says like a person that can make such distinctions um he'll be capable of adequately I'm, I'm quoting now he'll be capable of adequately discriminating a single form spread out all through a lot of other things each of which stands separate from the others in addition he can discriminate forms that are different from each other but are included within a single form that's outside them or a single form that's connected as a unit throughout many holes or many forms that are completely separate from others that's what it is to know how to discriminate by kinds how things can associate and how they can't so so the, um the point i want to make is that i feel like this is just my reading of what's going on here in the sophist like i feel like like we could talk about being in different registers we can talk about being in a very abstract sense like being with a capital b um and i think that's a possible discussion and that's the kind of discussion that plato does have elsewhere um, but there was a there's a different question of being, which is just like simply being able to say what what is or isn't. So it this almost this is I feel like this is a lower register <laughs> discussion right. of being. We're not talking about like grand being with a capital B. We're just talking mm -hmm. about what is or isn't. Right. And um and this actually fall, seems to follow from the previous discussion in the previous mm -hmm. dialogue, the Theotetus, about what knowledge is. And so at this lower register, I feel like um the Plato's suggestion here is that um, that there are different things at work. It's not just one form. You know, we at this lower register of like knowing the world around us as human beings. It's not just like everything is one or everything is changed. Like that doesn't get us anywhere. He's. I feel like he's suggesting. Like as I said, I feel like he it previously in the reading today, the sec previous sections, he almost sounds impatient with like these endless battles. He calls it um, between these opposite between these opposite forces in philosophy or opposite um, what do you call them, parties or uh, um, representatives of, you know, different views and schools and philosophy. And he's like, here, he's like coming out and saying, well, no, like the philosopher wants, like wants both, as he said at one point, as a, and he, and he wants to know like which things uh, partake in these and how they partake in them and how they mix. And this is like, 
and the musician will have expertise in, in like musical notes and the grammatist, the person who's expert, expert in grammar will have an expertise in, you know, how words can and can't go together and how the language works. And, and so it's like multifarious and the philosopher, I, I, he's almost like trying to like, like, <laughs> like, like shake us out of this like stupor yeah. of saying like everything is one or everything yeah. is changed and being like, no, the philosopher wants to know the whole, it wants to know yeah. all of it. And well, how these opposites combine or not? So yeah, that's, well, that's. Uh, I mean, you, you you sort of skipped to the end there, but I think you raised a number of points that would get us to that point of, at the end. You know, the, the, this idea of the forms blending. So we're we're not quite there yet, but uh, it, it's an important point. And I think you know when you were talking about being in different registers, maybe that's the sense of the eternal being, which we can only access with our minds and reason versus the realm of becoming that we see all around us, you know, which is maybe I, I think of that as a lower register. And that's, that's, you know, from time as 28 a that which always becomes but never is, because it's always changing, right. So, um, and that's part of my proposition about the forms is that, that the, um, the forms exist in that eternal realm of being. And that's how we understand this, this constantly changing realm of becoming. And, and so, uh, but I think that's an important point. And but you raise you raise you know and how we get from from this point to the end of today's reading I think is very important. You know to make that distinction between the whole and the parts, uh, and then how the forms actually operate with each other and associate with each other. So we'll, we'll come to that. And uh, in the meantime, we'll go to Jose and then Eva. And then I think what I wanted to do was to move forward maybe to that part where they talk about the whole and, and the one. So uh, we'll go to Jose and then Eva. Yeah, this is a quick one. Uh, related to what Darren was saying, um, I got the impression as well that there's a B being with uppercase B and a being with lowercase B. And the reason for this is goes as follows. You, you can take this one as an argument and then you can refute it. But when we, um, at least what I remember from those three-minute videos that you find on being and all these definitions, being is, at least in philosophy and in ontology, being is everything, the things that exist, right? And, um, and then he goes further to say, when you check, okay, what is existence? Well, existence is basically the ability of a thing to interact with their physical surroundings. All of a sudden, therefore, <laughs> being is changing. So, because according to those two statements, of course, I mean, there could be some other context, but this simple argument says being is changing. So, if there's a being that is non-changing and eternal, there must be another being there. Maybe that's the one with the uppercase B and not with the lowercase B. That's all. And, and I think, yeah, I think that's a good way actually of introducing that section from 244D to 245B that I've highlighted in the reading that the, that there, the being is what he's saying is the third thing uh, that, that comes along. So we'll read that, I think, next. And I think that would be a good, what you just said, I think is a good introduction to that part. Um, so, so thank you. And then Eva? Thank you. Yeah, Jose, thank you for that perspective. And I am kind of hearing Plato all of a sudden discussing about the being and the forms 
I I think I hear him uh, letting us to question what we hear from people because it's interesting. Why would he all of a sudden start talking about this at the time that all of a sudden there is this group of sophists around and he is talking about that. So I think maybe this is kind of like a brainstorming on the need to filter the ideas that we hear from sophists or any kinds of information filtering. So I think this leads to the spiral thinking, continuous thinking of like circles connecting to each other. And we might change our opinion on things for in order to find our own, own thinking through filtering. Well, we have to hear everything that we can. And then we become our own, we become to form our own circle, maybe. Or maybe I am just like really hearing what I want to hear from Plato. Yeah, thank you. I like that idea of forming your own circle and certainly the part in, you know, dialogue and the process of dialectic, I think, is, that, you know, what allows us to understand the, uh, or to apprehend the, the truth, or at least what we think is the truth of, of something that's, that's important. And uh, I think it's never more important than now, uh, because of all of this power of technology that uh, we understand what is, what is, uh, and not accept the idea that that which is not, um, which leads us into this, you know, kind of infinite regression uh, that uh, that Plato says the the sophist gets caught in. Uh, so we have to deal with what is, and we have to try to understand the truth of what is. Um, so I think that's, and it's very important today. I think it's it's so important. It's, it's what's causing all sorts of strife and discord among people is this disagreement. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we come to some sort of common ground of understanding. Um, so, um, so I wanted to move uh, to this part. I'm going to, uh, we'll run out of time, I think. So I, but I think this is an important part, but I wanted to highlight in the, um, in the themes that I've uh, set out here, um, the first part of the dialogue, and this is from 235 to 241 or thereabouts. Um, and these are just examples that I took of the of, of why the visitor is saying that um, that which is not is unthinkable. Um, and I think Darren mentioned that near the beginning that uh, those those words. And I think uh, I think those words are. Uh, I'm just wondering if they're here on the screen. Um, yeah, no, I, I didn't put those particular words, but he says they're unthinkable. Unthinkable unutterable um, and unsayable. And uh, so I just picked out some reasons or particular points to explain why they say that. That um, So if you, if you say something is not, well, what is not? And then you have to apply a name to it. So then all of a sudden you've given something, which is the name, you've said it's not. So applying a name to that which is not 
doesn't make sense. And then he talks again about numbers, you know, so if you say that which is not, you're saying one thing is not, or those which are not, you're saying a multiple of things are not. But then again, how can you say one is not and the multiple is not? So I've just picked out some particular quotes there that I thought were were effective in, in that argument in, in particular. So I'll let people read that on their own. Um, so in this part, sort of from 242 to through 245, the whole question is how many beings are there? You know, is there multiple beings or is there one being? Um, and I'll just highlight this part at the end of, uh, it's around 240, it'd be around 244, where the visitor says, you understand exactly, Theotetus. I'm saying we have to follow the track this way. Let's ask if they were here. He's talking about the people who says that there's multiple beings. Listen, you people who say that all things are just some two things, hot and cold, or some such pair. What are you saying about them both when you say that they both are and each one is? What shall we take this being to be? Is it a third thing alongside these two beings, so that according to you, everything is no longer two but three? Surely in calling one or the other of the two of them being, you aren't saying that they both are, since then in either case, they'd be one and not two. Well then, shouldn't we do our best to find out from the people who say that everything is one, what they mean by being? Well then, you call something being? Is, it, is, is that just what you call one, so that you use two names for the same thing, or what? Uh, so that's this, you know, the, the potential confusion between you say that is, and then you say something else is. And so, you know, do you have multiple of things being, or do you have just one thing being? And then he goes on in, uh, I'll just read this part from 244D to 245B, where the visitor says, it's completely absurd and unacceptable for someone to say that there's a name if there's no account of it. If he supposes that a thing is different from its name, then surely he's mentioning two things. And moreover, if he supposes that the name of, is the same as the thing, he'll either be forced to say that the name is the name of nothing, or else, if he says that it's the name of something, then it's the name of nothing other than itself, and so will turn out to be only the name of a name and nothing else. And also, the one, being the name of the one, will also be the one of the name. Well then, Will they say that the whole is different from the one being, or the same as it? Theotita says, of course they'll say it's the same, and they do. And then the visitor quotes Parmenides. He says, but suppose a whole is, even as Parmenides says, quoting Parmenides, uh, all round like the bulk of a well-formed sphere, sphere, equal balanced always from the middle. Since neither anything more must it be this way or that way, nor anything less. So here, Parmenides has said, being can't be more or less than itself. Uh, Theotia says, yes, and the visitor goes on. But if a thing has parts, then nothing keeps it from having the characteristic of being one in all its parts. And in that way, it's all being, and it's also one whole. But something with that characteristic can't be just the one itself, can it? And Theotia says, why not? The visitor says, Surely a, a thing that's truly one, properly speaking, has to be completely without parts. But a thing like what we've described, which consists of many parts, won't fit that account. Now, if, if that which is has the characteristics of the one in this way, will it be the one in a whole? Or shall we simply deny that it's a whole at all? Theotetus says it's a hard choice. 
the visitor concludes, you're right. If it has the characteristic of, of someone being one, it won't appear to be the same as the one. Moreover, everything will then be more than the one. Further, if that which is, is not a whole by possessing that as a characteristic, but rather just is the whole itself, that which is will turn out to be less than itself. And because it's deprived of itself, that which is will be not being, according to that account. And everything will be more than one, since that which is and the whole will each have its own separate nature. But if the whole is not at all, then the very same things are true of that which is. And in addition to not being, it would not even become a being. Invariably, whatever becomes has at some point become as a whole. So we can't label it being or becoming as being without taking the whole to be among the beings too. And moreover, something that isn't a whole can't be of any quality, quantity at all, since something that's of a certain quantity has to be a whole of the quantity, whatever it may be. Um, so this is a rather involved, convoluted argument maybe, but it's, it's here he's trying to tie the whole um, with the, the being of something. And the whole, you know, if you, as I was reading this, I was thinking the whole really ultimately is the universe itself. And the universe itself consists of multiple things in being. And the question is, how do all of these multiple things that have being tie into this whole and, and constitute a unity? And so here he's saying that uh, the whole uh, consists of parts and the parts together have the characteristic of one, but there are separate parts. Um, so there are many parts, but they all tie together uh, in one. And that's, I think the power of the geometry in that quote from Parmenides that we think of uh, that we think of things like a sphere, uh, and everything in the sphere has that balance point in the middle. So that the middle of the sphere is the unity of the sphere, um, and the sphere, everything inside is is neither more nor, nor less than the sphere itself. Uh, and that's what leads me really to think that there is some geometry in the in the forms. And certainly this particular quote from Parmenides resonates very well with uh, 137E in the dialogue Parmenides. Um, so there's a lot of consistency here. Um, so I'm just wondering what people think about this idea of the whole and the parts of the whole um, that consist of individual being. Uh, Moshe. Well, in, just to be true to the text, and it's true in my text too, which is the Joet translation. <clears throat> um, the visitor says, but suppose a whole is, as even Parmenides says, he, then he says, all round like the bulk of a well-formed sphere. He is not talking about the sphere. He's talking about the whole. Okay, he's talking about everything that he's talking about being as such as the whole. We, we your language suggested to me that you were conflating the whole nature with a sphere, and and I'm saying that's not what what Parmenides was saying. That's fair. I, I think the the whole uh, in this context, he was talking about the whole of the thing. Um, I was kind of extrapolating to the whole of the universe so it was well no i it it is the whole of the universe okay. I, I i would prefer to use at this particular time in philosophical history to talk about the whole of nature because mm -hmm. um, the universe wasn't quite a concept uh, at that particular time not certainly not the way 
we think about the universe uh, uh, today. But you're right. He is talking about the whole, the whole of nature. Oh, he's talking about all of being. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Um, was was were you going to go on with the with the point, or was it just it was the the point was about the what he was referring to in terms of the whole? Yeah, it was about the part that he was referring to as as a whole. Okay. I, I think that if you take if you if Part of what he's saying here, and part of what you were saying also, is that something if something comes into being, it has to be, it comes in as a whole. Um, there are, uh, that to me is problematic. I mean, you know, if you take a look at, um, you know, is a, is, does a polywog not exist because it's not a whole frog yet? Um, there, you know, there are things that, you know, is the, um, you know, is the um, uh, is is the worm not whole yet because it hasn't become a butterfly? Uh, I, I think that we have to uh, we have to be careful if we're going to apply that to things in the uh, in the perceptual world. Although, if you're talking about nature, uh, if you're talking about nature, certainly nature would not be growing clearly not on a Parmenidean uh, um, uh, level because to him there was no motion. Everything it was. It was static and it was it was complete. In order to be able to have motion, you'd have to have some place for being to move into that it wasn't there, and that that's impossible. I understand. Yes, um, and I think you know the the whole would refer to. I'm seeing it as referring to more general categories. It's not necessarily that the physical thing is has formed a whole. You know the the butterfly example um it, it's that the the thing which is uh which is the animal that you know becomes the butterfly in in the physical world that thing itself is defined as a whole that's the way i see it although it clearly in the physical world it changes uh throughout time as, as do any of us change throughout time so maybe it's a distinction between the physical and the non-physical uh, but it's an important point to to raise, so I, I think that's an important point to to understand. Um, so thank you. Um, we'll go to J.K. and then Eva. So you just made a distinction between the uh, the idea of the whole and the um, and the reality of the physical world uh, having having its uh, uh, separate individual um, you know movements and 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 existence right and being. Um, so if if the whole is uh, is really what um, is the, the truth of existence, then the um, the individual material existence of, of uh, parts um, are not are just illusions, right? There is no individual. The parts there are there, but they're just part of the whole, and so they they have no uh, you know uh, separate individual. Uh, existence on their own, and therefore all movement, all uh, you know, activity um, is canceled because they are just part of the the, the uh, you know the whole. Right. Yeah, I would. I would. Uh, it's an interesting thought. I would say you know certainly the individual parts manifest themselves, um, manifest themselves in thought, manifest themselves in the state of coming to be in the physical world. Sure. 
but I think what he's the interesting thing I found here is is when he says the characteristic of being one, this part. But if a thing has parts, then nothing keeps it from having the characteristic of being one. Um, and so it's all being, and it's all one whole. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's the that's the interesting idea that I found the characteristic of being one. And maybe this is something that will help us with the dialogue, Parmenides. Right, right. Um, so is is uh, Plato's forms a kind of something like a uh, reconciliation or, or a, a middle ground between the uh, between this uh, Parmenides idea of the whole mm-hmm. of being of being and uh, and the uh, and and the sophists, uh, you know, uh, refutation of that, uh, you know, with their their falsity and uh, idea of non-being. So he, so it seems like the forms are kind of like coming down on. Well, let's 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 you know reconcile this. We accept that there are um, uh, there are there are individual parts in the uh, in the realm of becoming, but they are just copies copies of they're not real. I mean, they're just copies of um, of the forms, and the forms represent the whole, right? Yeah. So it's an acknowledgement that there is some some uh, you know you know some uh, something to the uh, uh, what's occurring in the realm of becoming right but uh, mm-hmm. but they are just copies of the right. forms right that that moving image of eternity that uh, was in Timaeus uh, 37 that i mentioned earlier you know this uh, you, you can't have eternity ex- ex- itself in the state of becoming uh, so you have to have this image or this copy in the state of becoming. And, and this is what I found so powerful about this quote from Par- Parmenides, you know, this idea of the bulk of a well-formed sphere, equal balanced always from the middle. Uh, and, um, you know, this point in the middle, maybe that reconciliation that you were talking about, you know, the, the point where all of the logic uh, comes down to this one single point in the middle of that sphere and from the middle of that sphere, you can go out to the to the extremities of the sphere, um, and you've still got you still got the whole, but you have access to all of the parts. And that's where I think the forms are that kind of mental model uh, that we use to understand all of this. But but always having that single point of unity in the logic that that's the way I see it. And I found that that sphere analogy to be very helpful. And that's why I put those three diagrams uh, that we were talking about earlier. And I said, you know, imagine them inside a circle uh, and how they would operate inside that circle. You know, that very point in the middle that I had labeled E, I thought was, was kind of the important point. And that's where it, the, di- the part today that we're reading, I think, ends with talking about harmonics and, and, you know, how do you get the parts to harmonize with the whole? Yeah, it's also is uh, this par- Parmenides uh, idea of the whole uh, and the uh, this whole is is the uh, is what really exists, and there's not, nothing else. Mm-hmm. Is that derived from the idea that uh, man is the measure of all things? Yeah, the the idea of man that is a measure of all things was the was discussed in the dialogue Theaetetus, and I think what was what was being held there by Protagoras is that man has a capacity to to determine that that which is in fact is, and that which is not is in fact not. Um, and I think that was refuted in the, in the dialogue because we can't have, and I think we know now that we can't have perfect uh, knowledge of physics because of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. 
Sure. And then the that realm of being is accessible only by reason, and nobody's reasoning is perfect. So I would see those as two refutations of that idea that man is the measure of all things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it, it sounds to me like uh, you know, Parmenides uh, arrives at this understanding of uh, mm-hmm. of the whole by 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 virtue of reason, right? Right. And, uh, right. And then by virtue of reason is the is man's reason, man's reason. Mm-hmm. which is, you know, man being the measure of all things. Right. Right. But I think in here he's using geometry, and I think that may be a key to understanding because geometry, um, there is no uncertainty in geometry, uh, except when you get into the incommensurables. Um, and the interesting thing about the five platonic solids that he deals with or that's dealt with in Timaeus is that they contain both rational and irrational parts uh, and transcendental parts. And if you understand that geometry, I think the geometry can be used to prove uh, a point. So, mm-hmm. right. That's right. But then, they, of course, uh, what what is Gudo's, uh, um, you know, um, assertion? Right. Of, uh, that I think he's mm-hmm. sort of refutes that, right? That uh, yeah, the the incompleteness theorem. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, and that maybe goes to what Eva was saying earlier in that, you know, the the incompleteness of things means that we always have the potential or the capacity to expand reality. So that may be a good example of putting Gödel's incompleteness theorems into application. So, um, we'll go to Eva, then Darren. Thank you. So if we are seeing the presence as the butterfly being of the form, then there is only one presence in one form. And I I think that's super limiting. A butterfly has a lot of form and being the butterfly is only one of them. But it, if I see, uh, if I define being as a journey, then each journey starts from a point and each journey leads to a point. And each journey has to go to somewhere. I kind of want to want to connect that being and becoming both to the center and the destination. So seeing the, cent- the destination and the uh, starting point of the journey what if it's connected to the center of the sphere? So a butterfly cycles and it just goes back again. The metamorphosis happens with a cycle and once there's no ending. So it really, it make it personally, it makes sense to me that if, if there's a journey, and uh, if there's a destination to that journey, there has to be a starting point. And I am wondering if this questioning will be easier if we try to connect that center of the sphere to the whole being, or maybe a second of the presence of any being. So the, I, I think this was the easiest way to describe for me in this time. I think 
I think you raised a point here, which may be discussed at around 250, well, from 258 to D, um, and the idea of change and rest, and change and rest being opposites. So the question is, how can you have change and how can you have rest? And, you know, this maybe kind of journey between change and rest that you were referring to, is it, that's the way I'm, I'm understanding it. And um, uh, just because I didn't put it in the reading, and it's, it's important to understand in this context of the harmonics, which we'll end with shortly, but um, I wanted to highlight the, so they were dealing with the, the fact that change and rest exist. They both exist, but they're, 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 they, they, um, um, they're contrary to, to each other. In fact, that's what he says at 250A. So Visner says, now then, wouldn't you say that change and rest are completely contrary to each other? Theotita says, of course. The visitor says, and you'd say that they both equally are and that each of them equally is. Yes, says Theotetus. And the visitor says, when you admit that they are, are you saying that both and each of them change? Not at all. And are you signifying that they rest when you say that they both are? Of course not. So do you conceive, the visitor says, that that which is as a third thing alongside them, which encompasses rest and change? And when you say that they both are, are you, talk, are you taking the two of them together and focusing on their association with being? Um, and I think that's very key. So the, the point here is that that the point of being, the single point of being, um, can take that journey whichever way you know we want it. And so, in this drawing, you know, to go back to my drawing, that that third thing, which the visitor is referring to, that that very single point of being, um, which has the capacity of both change and rest, has to necessarily be in the middle of both change and rest, and therefore neither change and rest, so that it can be either. Um, and in this particular drawing with the two triangles, the, this is the cross where I joined um, the, the vertical, the top of the vertical line with the right of the horizontal, and I joined the bottom of the ver vertical line with the left of the horizontal. So it, it forms two right angle triangles. The point in the very middle you know, if you put this in a circle and you rotate it, it's all going to rotate together. The opposites are those two triangles. And that third point is the very middle point, which is, which can be either. It's, it's neither of the two opposites, but it's either. And so that's the third point. And I think that's the, the power of this presentation of, of being is that it's, it's either of those two, but it requires, you know, this, the what what uh, the visitor is saying is this harmony of the whole and its association. So being associates with the opposites, but it is not the opposites. It associates with them. So if I understand the the point, that's that's how I saw the journey that you were describing. So thank you for that. And um, Darren, your thoughts? Um, just think about what you just said now. Um... So it, it seems like then there then that being exists as well as rest and change because being can't be rest and change or else it leads us to problems. So is that what I hear you? Right. Or okay, where we're going? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's just a, <laughs> so sometimes yeah, I just need like a concluding statement. Yeah, because it would contradict. Yeah, we contradict. You know, if being were change, right. yeah. then you wouldn't have rest, and if being were rest, then you wouldn't right. have change. Right. And so. And so I hear in this, I hear like a kind of refutation of the idea that everything, the people who say that everything is changed or everything is 
resting because there has to be this thing being like it can't just be those things because being has to be there <laughs> okay all right um okay so i so i, I raised my hand because i wanted to uh talk about the passage you just that really long passage you just read so i'm trying to find it go back to it where was that was it that was, yeah, that like, was um 250a to um 250a to b 250 really yeah 250, 250 okay yeah. <laughs> just before this part on harmonics third thing no no sorry the long passage you were reading before that oh we, the um we were discussing before yeah, this this oh, one the wholeness yeah, yeah oh, the 244 whole. to 245 yeah okay sorry let me bring up yeah i had like right here on the yeah screen. so yeah yeah 44 okay yeah the part about parmenides and that um so i so i just want to like um see if my understanding is like the same as what um everybody else is, is that's going on here about what's going on here um so i i understood him as saying that so um at the very end of what you read i'm just gonna read that one line beyond that so this is at 245e uh, right there so the visitor concludes um and millions of other issues will also arise, each generating indefinitely many confusions if you say that being is only two or one. Um, and then they go on from there to tackle a different view, which is that being is like, um, yeah, the materialist versus the um, rationalist from here. So, but, okay, so this above, the section above is about, so I, so it seems like what he's done I just want to share my understanding with others. So make sure I'm on the same page as everyone else. Like I see him as taking Parmenides thesis and saying that if like what Parmenides says about the sphere is right, um, or if we just take that as a premise, then it contradicts the idea that being is either two or one or, or that being is one. But I think prior to this, they've refuted the other idea. Um, so is the conclusion then that we should accept some of the things that Parmenides said, such as maybe about wholeness. But if we take those things, if we take that to be true, then being can't just be one, like, or two. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm just checking my understanding because yeah. that, that's sort of what I feel like. That's sort of what I understand is going on in this long stretch, and then yeah. you know it goes on to various other stretches. Like this stretch is saying that there, there's something like, okay, if we take this idea of wholeness. Mm -hmm. If we accept those things that are being said, then it's going to lead to problems with the um, thesis that, you know, these very schools make that being is either one or two, that both those theses are kind of like problematic that like we can have being and we can have whole, but like then not that everything can't just be one, like right. as Parmenides would also like to insist. So he's sort of pointing out, he's sort of like taking something from Parmenides, but also just like leaving off, par like, like taking off from Parmenides as well is so that's sort of what i see is going on i just don't know i just want to like wrap <laughs> i just right. don't know if other people are sharing this yeah yeah it, it's a good point to raise and i think i think he's very much supporting parmenides here you know and it was parmenides who who you know gave that uh, analogy of the sphere right and the sphere has that middle and the middle is the one single thing but uh, but i think the key words here are uh, this characteristic of being one, while it's still a whole, so it's both one and a whole. 
but it's because the the whole is a sphere um, that all of the parts are contained in the sphere. So the parts can manifest themselves, but they have the characteristic of being one because they're all contained by the sphere. They can't go outside the limits of that sphere. So that's what makes them have the characteristic of being one, but they aren't clearly they are, there are parts, but so, so it's not just like there's one single part or one single thing. Like it, it's, a, it, there's multiple parts, but they're all tied together. They, they all form that single logic. So they have that characteristic of being one that that's the way I'm understanding it. So there's still a hole in that they're all contained in that sphere. And there's only the but, one sphere. Yeah. Okay. So maybe the, the thing that's being refuted is that being is one. Right. Is that, is that okay? Cause I feel like something's yeah. been refuted here because they're yeah. saying there, it leads to all these complexities and they, and yeah. there's like, they've generated some kind of problem and then they move mm -hmm. on to a different problem. Yeah. So, okay. I'm just trying to understand based, yeah. I, I guess I'm trying to understand what's being refuted and yeah. maybe the thesis is that being <clears throat> is either is being is one or being yeah. is two. And yeah. Okay. Yeah, they, they're saying it, it has it, to be, to be being there has, it has to be a whole and it has to be one. And this is the way you can have it both as the whole and one. And this, I think this characteristic word is, is the key thing to understanding that, that what they're saying there that it okay. has a character. It, it, it operates as one, but it is not one. It's okay. A whole. Thanks. Yeah. So uh, Moshe, your thoughts. Okay. Um, I, I just want to go back to the, you know, to the Parmenides quote, he's talking about the, he's talking about um, being or the whole, as he calls it, and he's saying it is like a sphere, okay? It is not a sphere itself. Now, whether it's one or two, uh, from a Parmenidean standpoint, it could not possibly be two, because if it was two, there would have to be something which is non-being that separates one from the other. And just like there cannot be, any, it, it, there cannot be anything outside the whole, because if there was something outside the whole, that which would be outside being would be non-being. And likewise, there cannot be motion because in order for there to be motion, there has to be something through which being moves. And that would have to be non-being. Being can't move through being. So, so it has to be, and it's, so it, eternity goes the same way. There is no non-being. There is no non it is completely filled, and um, uh, and and it is um, and, and it is eternal, eternal in the in, in the sense that it is it's I mean it's static. There's no no time outside of it. So I mean, this idea of the whole. People keep talking about it being a sphere. It's not. It's just like the sphere that it's solid. There's not something else outside of it. There aren't two of them. And things like that, and and we are, we we we're speaking here on the highest level of abstraction. We're not talking about you know polywogs and butterflies and and things like that. Remember that Parmenides uh, denied all those things and said, if you're talking about the way of truth, none of that stuff exists. On the other hand, if you're talking about the way of opinion, we do have polywogs and frogs and and and, and things like that. And Plato maintains that same distinction. Because he says that that what we can have knowledge of are, are, is knowledge of being, which is going to be eternal, good, beautiful, infinite, all that good stuff. 
But the stuff that moves and changes, we can only have opinion about that because we can never, the mind can never latch onto any of those things. So he's accepting the Parmenidean distinction between knowledge or truth and, and opinion, just like uh, Parmenides did. Uh, and the only, uh, on both of them, the only idea that there's any motion or change at all is at the level of illusion in the strongest terms. Yeah. And I, I, I think the, as you said at the beginning, I, I see the sphere as an analogy and, and, you know, he, he says light the bulk of the wealth, wealth form sphere. So I'm not, I don't, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think he's saying that it is a sphere, uh, but it's like it. Um, so if I gave that, um, that impression, I, uh, I, take it back. I think it, it isn't, the sphere is the analogy, but, you know, if that mental kind of image is helpful, you know, it's, as Jose kind of used that mental imagery earlier, I, th I think it helps to think of it that way. Um, and, you know, if I were drawing it, I would draw it that way. So, um, so that's something that we can certainly keep in mind, but, uh, but yet not, you know, not, not literally necessarily. So, um, so thank you for that. I just, you know, in the time that's left, you know, maybe we have just about 10 minutes left, unfortunately, but it's always the way. We can always come back to this because the the ending part of the sophist, we've got less reading to do for that uh, for, for two weeks from now. Um, so I think we have to revisit some of these thoughts and bring it all together, you know, because I want to, I think we, it'd be really good if we can come to some sort of consensus on on the forms. And I think this particular part at the end uh, that I wanted to highlight, 252B to 253C, um, is uh, the, you know, the association of the form. So if the, if the being, you know, is that part that I read from 250A um, to B, um, so a while ago, if we accept that being is a third thing, so that we've got two opposites and being is right in the middle of the opposites. It's, it's cutting the opposites in two. So it's neither opposite, but it's, it's in between. So it could be anything, uh, but it's sitting there right in between. And that gives it great power, right? So it's, it's you know, the, the proposition is that being is the third thing that, that is between everything that reconciles it, I think was somebody used the word earlier. Um, so, and, and that all came about from that discussion of the, you know, how can change and rest exist at the same time, you know, because they they contradict each other. So that's how they concluded that change and rest can exist at the same time by making being the third thing that comes between them. So this part um, here at the end, I think is, is important because that's where the knowledge of the philosopher comes in, in reconciling or tying all of this together. So, and it's also very important to understand the nature of the form. So the form isn't just the one single thing so he's he's saying that the form that for each thing that exists and there's you know potentially infinite numbers of things that exist either that exist now or that we could create uh, out of our thoughts um he's saying you can't have one single form for each individual thing it would just it just wouldn't work so he's saying here the forms have to associate with each other and so maybe i'll just read this uh part here um the visitor says, that starting at 252b, uh, but furthermore, the most ridiculous account is the one that's adopted by the people who won't allow anything to be called by a name that it gets by association with something else. They're forced to use being about everything and also separate from others of itself and a million other things. They're powerless to keep from doing it. 
that is from linking them together in their speech. So they don't need other people to refute them, but have an enemy within, as people say, to contradict them. And they go uh, carrying him around and taking in an undertone uh, inside them like the strange ventri ventriloquist Eurycles. Well then, what if we admit that everything has the capacity to associate with anything else, everything else? And the, there's that word again, capacity, which he's concluded being has capacity. Theotius says, I can solve that one because if change and rest belong to each other, then change would be completely at rest and conversely rest itself would be changing. Visitor says, but I suppose it's ruled out by very strict necessity that change should be at rest and that rest should change. So the third option is the only left. Certainly one of the following things has to be the case. Either everything is willing to blend or nothing is, or some things are and some things are not. And we found that the first two options were impossible. So everyone who wants to give the right answer will, will choose a third, since some will blend and some won't. They'll be a good deal like letters of the alphabet. Some of them fit together with each other and some don't. Well then, we've agreed that kinds mixed with each other in the same way. So if someone's gonna show us correctly which kinds harmonize with which and which kinds exclude each other, doesn't he have to have some kind of knowledge as he proceeds through the discussion? And in addition, doesn't he have to know whether there are any kinds that run through all of them? and link them together to make them capable of blending. And also when there are divisions, whether certain kinds running through holes are always the cause of the division. And then he goes on to say that it takes expertise and dialectic to figure this out, you know? So th this knowledge of harmony, as I said in the introduction, I think that would necessarily require knowledge of numbering calculation uh, and certainly an understanding of proportion. And so I think this is a very, when I, when I reread this, this made me really think deeply about the nature of the forms. And, and, you know, I had previously thought that the forms were just one single form for each individual thing, whether it's something trivial like hair or mud, I think was the example that was used in earlier, whether I think it was Fido or the first part of the sophist, I can't remember. But this is saying, no, you don't need a separate form for things like hair and mud necessarily. They can be combinations of other forms. It could be other forms that divide things to generate hair and mud. Um, but it, it's the, the fact that things are able to associate with each other and they can associate with, with each other because being comes in the middle of everything. And I found that particularly just a powerful image about the forms and it really made me think very differently, I think, about them. So. I wonder what your thoughts are, uh, Moshe. Well, this particular section is 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 rife with equivocations on on being, uh, because he's 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 talking about beings um, like uh, things that we find around us in the world, uh, things that we can uh, perceive and touch, and then he's going and immediately talking about being, which is is those things that that actually exist. Because the things in the world, uh, to go back to one of your favorite things, James, are things that are becoming but never be, never, uh, never be, ne they never exist, but they're always becoming. Uh, so it, it's really in, uh, inappropriate to compare the, um, 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 the characteristics of a world of becoming with the actual, with, with being itself. Um, because, I mean, we, we have a tendency to, to anthropomorphize that because we're human thinkers. But if you think about it seriously, we can't possibly know how these things would be um, 
uh, would be an adequate comparison. And your idea about hair and mud, I want to point out that everything, everything that he says in the in the world that participates, and this comes out later in the, the dialogue, it participates in a particular form, participates in a lot of forms at the same time. Okay. So there would be no participation of hair, but there would be a participation of there would be an there would not be an idea of hair, but there would be an idea of softness and extension and uh, sheen and color, uh, specific colors, you know, brown, red, and so on, that this particular object of becoming participates in. But like uh, the stranger says later in the um, uh, later in the dialogue, for any particular thing that we're, we're looking at in the world that has all its uh, 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 forms that it participates in, it participates in an infinite number of things that it is not, okay? Because if the, if their hair is soft, it's not scraggly. And if, it's, if, it, if it has a sheen, it's not all flat colored. And if it has, uh, if it's long, it's not, you know, it's, it's not short. Uh, so I think one, we have to be careful about you know these equivocations and the comparisons between stuff in the world and, and stuff that we uh, that we consider to be uh, true objects of knowledge, which are the forms, and we also have to be um, uh, clear about the um, about the nature of, of what it is to you know for for something in the world to participate in multiple you know forms at the same time. I mean this this is you know this, it, it, when you're in the weeds here, it's it's this is tricky stuff, right? No, I admit that. Sure, it's it is definitely deep in the weeds, um, and I, I don't think I don't see in the section that I just read from two fifty two B to two fifty three B or so. Um, I don't see any necessity of tying it to the to the realm of becoming. I think it applies to both the realm of becoming and the eternal realm of being. So. Um, I think I just I used the hair and mud example just because it was something that had come up earlier. But I think it's it applies to to all uh, all uh, forms of being. Um, so um, or, or all forms of all forms of existence, I should say. So including the the realm of becoming. So uh, but not necessarily just exclusively the realm of becoming. So um, but it, it's a good distinction to make. Um, so we'll go to JK, and I think unfortunately we are out of time today. But as I said, we can certainly pick up um, on these and, and other themes as we wrap up the sophist next time. So, JK, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it, I guess it comes down to whether you uh, you know agree with the argument that there is there is this intelligence in the uh, in the world of becoming, right? And uh, and 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 the becoming is just not just a chaos of of um, random, you know, um, ent entities, you know, without any um, purpose or meaning, you know. So, uh, you know, uh, there is in the world of becoming in nature, there is there's always, you know, beings coming into existence with instinctive, instinctive, at least instinctive, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, they gives them some sense of order, um, you know, to survive, to be able to interact with the, uh, with everything else in the environment to, to, uh, survive. And, uh, and 
some beings are also uh, in inherent, come into the world inherent with intelligence, you know. And, uh, you know, where, that, where does that intelligence come from? Do we just learn it from, uh, you know, is intelligence just acquired, you know? It, and, uh, you know, and, and how do we acquire that uh, intelligence if we didn't have something, some form of, uh, some form of um, capacity, right? Some form of capacity to acquire it. So there is a kind of a in, intelligence that's inherent. And it's just, and that seems like that kind of, uh, you know, the notion that um, there's this, uh, you know, uh, argument for, uh, for being, right? The wholeness. Um, is kind of arguing for that, you know, that there's an inherent uh, intelligence um, that we uh, we would not just come, we don't just come into the world with uh, with an empty slate. Uh, our minds are not just empty slates, you know, or our beings are not just empty slates that, uh, you know, but even if it was, right, there is something there that, that uh, you know, endows the beings with, with a sense of uh, intelligence. Whether it's in form of instinct or, or uh, you know, uh, rationality. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Actually, I was, I was just—I knew it was in this reading today, and I just found it. It's at two forty-eight a. Um, so he says here, but for heaven's sake, so heaven's sake, are we going to be convinced that it's true that change, life, soul, and intelligence are not present in that which holy is? And that it neither lives nor thinks, but stays changeless, solemn, and holy without any understanding. Here he's talking about the universe, uh, or at least that's the way I read it. And so he's saying that intelligence exists in the universe itself. And so I think what you just said was a, it seemed to me a very interesting way of connecting this, this like, where does intelligence come from? It just doesn't appear out of thin air. It's it's there to start off with. The universe itself is intelligent. I, that's the way I read that particular um, those few lines from 249. Um, and I think it's, to me, it seems logical. I mean, if, if we are part of the whole, we are intelligent to some degree. And, um, you know, the whole has to have intelligence as well. And, you know, what is intelligence? Well, maybe it's understanding differences and understanding differences is understanding harmony. And maybe that's what it's all about. I mean, that's, that's kind of how I'm reading this, the logic of this whole section today. So I think that was a very, it was a very good point to to um, to raise, and I think that's one that we can continue to discuss next time as well. So as I said, unfortunately, we are out of time for today. But I wanted to thank everybody. I mean, what a what a fantastic discussion on some very intricate points. Um, and let's keep it going for the next time. And I think what we've got, um, I think we, I want to break for, take a summer break by the end of June. So I think that would leave us with seven sessions remaining. And it was suggested that we do statesman next. So I think, I think I, I like that suggestion because that kind of logically follows this dialogue. So next, uh, next session, we'll finish the sophist and then we'll move to statesman and then we'll end season two of Plato's pod with Parmenides. And I think having done the sophist and the statesman, I think we will be well positioned to understand the dialogue Parmenides, which is very complicated and very intricate. Um, so um, that's, that's what I'm thinking. So again, looking forward to continuing the discussion in two weeks and uh, 
Uh, thank you, everybody, for participating today. It's uh, fascinating, as always, and to hear different perspectives and to put some new knowledge or to form some new knowledge where perhaps there wasn't before. So uh, always good. And, and so I'll end the recording now. But uh, those who want to stay online for Plato's Cafe, just casual, unrecorded half hour discussion, um, please do uh, stay on and uh, we'll, we'll have that, uh, that chat. And otherwise, we'll, we'll see each other hopefully in two weeks. So thank you again, everybody. Bye.